from the moment Jesus stepped into Jerusalem to his arduous journey to be crucified and into his glorious resurrection. Come and listen in as Dr. Andy Brown shares the truly awesome significance of the holiest of weeks. This is Hearing is Believing. God has overcome. And the proof of his overcoming is the day that we celebrate today, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? Do you mind taking your Bible and turning to Mark chapter 16? We have been in Mark pretty much all week long as we've been together as a church family. And today, of course, on this Resurrection Sunday, we go to the account of the resurrection according to Mark. And if you think with me, the, the world has really known many events that have shaken time, events that have plotted the course of history. And I wonder this morning, if you are a history buff, maybe like me, or you think about history, could you narrow down history's greatest events to maybe a top 100 list? Do you think you could do that? Well, Time Magazine, back in 2010, they published a book of the top 100 events that changed history. But could you th- narrow it down to the most significant events in history? What do you think would be on your list? Would it be maybe the invention of the alphabet, the language? Would it be the computer? The first flight, maybe? Uh, What about the wheel? We always talk about that as the major thing that changed civilization, the invention of the wheel. What about figuring out how to make bricks and mortar? Will that make the list? What about the first baby walking? What about the ending of World War II? What would be on the list of the top 100? Well, could you narrow it down to maybe just one significant event that changed the course of time? Today, we have the privilege as a church body of celebrating the most important event in history, period. The most important event in history is the resurrection of Jesus Messiah. The celebration that we celebrate is a celebration of the creator of the universe, bringing us salvation through the death and the resurrection of the Son. Does that sound astounding to you? Think about that for just a moment. The God of the universe who spun all things into being, the one who was responsible for the cough that he just allowed you to cough, (laughs) the one responsible for giving you the breath that you just took, you batted your eyes because... God gave you the capacity to do it. This God who loves, this God who created, this God who is transcendent and far above chose to make himself nothing through sending of the Son, becoming sin for us so that we could then in turn be the righteousness of God. Does that take your breath away? The fact that the God of the universe loves you, cares for you, And not only just tells you from a distance that he loves you, not only just looks at you from a distance and says, I love you. No, he demonstrated his love for you through the self-giving of himself. So today, as we enter this text, we're going to see the events of the resurrection according to Mark. And as Mark is telling this story, The way that the Gospel of Mark ends is at verse 8 with this resurrection story. And the way that Mark is telling this story truly leaves us astonished. 
And let's read the Bible together to see exactly what I mean. The Bible says, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone. For they were afraid. Why was this event so astounding? Why did the Lord allow Mark to end his gospel in this way as they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid? This whole event that we have in Mark leaves us totally astounded. And I want to mark just for you just a few reasons why this text is so astounding. And the first is just from the first couple of verses and I want you to notice it. The reason that this is so astonishing is because life after Jesus' death went just normal. Look at what's happening here. The women, as they come to the tomb, the Sabbath was passed. What does this mean? It means that as Mark has been preparing us, verse 33, the sixth hour had come, darkness over the whole land. Jesus cries out with a loud voice from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He gives up the spirit. He breathes his last. He dies. And then in verse 42, it says, when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, before the Sabbath The Lord allowed these two, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, to come and take the body of Jesus and wrap it and put spices on the body and lay Him in a tomb. And it says that the women were there. Verse 47 of chapter 15 says, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where they laid Him. And now in verse 16, this is the setting. This is what's going on. Jesus is dead Jesus is in a tomb. And so it says in verse 16, when the Sabbath was passed, that lets us know that Friday has come. He died on the cross. Saturday has come. He's in a tomb, dead. And now we enter the narrative as the Sabbath has passed. Sunday is here. The women, as they come, they're not expecting the resurrection. Look what's going on. Life is just going about as normal. They were expecting to find an occupied tomb. They were expecting to find an empty tomb. And look at the way that they're worried. Look at the thing that they're worried about. They're not worried if they're going to get caught by the Romans. They're not worried if they're going to be crucified next. What are they worried about? Well, there's a stone in front of that tomb. We were there. We saw them roll it over. And that stone's pretty heavy. Who's going to roll the stone back for us? These ladies, as they enter this tomb, they are preparing to anoint a dead body. Now, 
Let me tell you a little bit about the anointing. It's not as if this anointing was for mummification. That's not what was going on. This is not to keep the body. What this is to do is this is to put spices and ointment on the body so that it would keep the stench down as the body began to decay. And then it was customary because burial places were in high demand in Israel even back then and they even are today. It was customary that after a year of decomposition, the bodies of the one that was deceased would be gathered into a box called an ossuary and put away. So these ladies, they were coming to do what was normal. They were coming to take care of this body as if this body was going to remain dead for as long as it took for them to gather the bones. They were expecting an empty tomb. They were there, remember, to see Jesus laid in a tomb. John tells us that these ladies, they were there at the foot of the cross as Jesus breathed His last. And as the Bible says, He gave up the ghost. He yielded His spirit. In other words, they have no doubt in their mind that they are going to see a dead body. They have no doubt in their mind that Jesus was dead. And so they reverted to what they were supposed to do. Just simply care for the body as it decayed. Imagine the disciples just for a moment. And there's not much that we have about the reaction of the disciples other than Luke tells us that they went to the Passover. After the crucifixion, they went to the Passover celebration. Imagine the disciples. Imagine the turmoil just of those days before. This long week as we have just as a church gone through together this long week beginning from Palm Sunday all the way to yesterday Black Sabbath or Holy Saturday. We remember the the long week that they had endured and now they are fearfully reeling in the death of Jesus. The agony of loss. And so at this moment in the disciples' heart, no doubt life has to have some sense of normalcy. Life has to have some, uh, it has to move forward after such trauma. And they are often wondering, would life ever truly be the same? But notice what we don't see. It's interesting what we don't see. We don't see them walking to this tomb in any type of anticipation. We don't see them waiting by the tomb anticipating at any moment he's going to come back, at any moment he's going to come back. All of us out here would like to think on this side of Easter Sunday, we would like to think if we could take ourselves out from our present setting and insert ourselves back into that day, we would think that we all would have been waiting, looking, anticipating, and quite realistically, you know, we always ask yourself if there are certain events that you could go back into the Bible and look at, which one would you like to go to? I would have loved to see what no man saw, but only the angel saw, who was witnessing the glory of God. Angels witnessed the glory of God on a regular basis and so it was nothing for them to see this miraculous event of the resurrection but they weren't there waiting and when the women make it back Luke tells us this when the women make it back to the disciples after seeing the angel after the angel says he is not here he is risen To tell that Jesus is alive, the women go back to the disciples and the Bible says that it records their reaction. After these women say that he's not here, he's risen, we've seen the angel, Jesus is alive. Luke 24 says these words seem to the disciples as an idle tale and they didn't even believe them. As much as they could. 
These women in the text are seeking some sense of normalcy, some sense of closure, and so they go to the tomb and they go to prepare this body for decomposition, to care for the body, to do this righteous thing for this dead body. They went about normal, but what they are going to experience is anything but normal. When they arrive, look at what happens in verse 4. Looking up, as soon as they have their worry in verse 3, who will roll the stone away for us from the entrance of the tomb? And then verse 4 hits us like a ton of bricks. And it says, looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. You see, the stone was rolled back, not so that Jesus could get out. Remember this. In John, we see him walking through walls. All of a sudden, the disciples are, are in a closed place, and Jesus all are in a locked door behind closed doors, hiding. And all of a sudden, we see Jesus coming in, showing up behind a locked door miraculously. The stone was rolled away, not so that Jesus could get out, but the stone was rolled away to serve as testimony. Just as the angel said, come see the place where he laid, past tense. He is no longer there. He is risen. But this is all that they knew as they come up. In verse 4, as they see the stone had been rolled back, it was very large. And so they enter the tomb. The only thing that they know at this point is that the tomb is empty. And so it just begs the question, what on earth happened here? What happened? Who moved the stone? And we're thankful in the Bible that the way that the events are recorded, God told them exactly what happened And the thing that astonishes us, the thing that astonishes us at this point is that God interpreted the events of the empty tomb, and we're grateful for that. It's shocking. Here, they are showing their absolute dependence upon revelation. And so what they're doing in this text is they are teaching us our dependence upon God's words. It's a matter, dear friend, listen closely. God's word is a matter of life and death. It's a matter of eternity. If the angel, look at the way it's written. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting in a right side, dressed in a white robe. They were alarmed. If the angel who had left the presence of God, and we know that he had just left the presence of God because of the lightning that he girded himself with, this, this white robe that was radiantly beaming and shining from the glory of God, just left the presence of God. If this angel had not spoken and interpreted the events for us, then we could theorize all types of nonsense as to what happened in the tomb. And that's today exactly what happens. Those who reject the testimony that Christ is risen from the grave, those who reject the fact that Christ rose from the grave, there's one event in this story that cannot be denied, and that is that something happened that day. The fact that it cannot be denied is the evidence that has gone out through all the world. The testimony of Jesus being Lord and not Caesar. The testimony that His kingdom will endure forever and that the kingdom of men will not endure forever. This testimony proves that the Christ is risen from the grave. And you say, well, what do you mean by that? 
So many people are willing today, and we look and we have suicide bombers strapping their children, strapping themselves to vests that explode and running into open markets. And you say, many men are willing to die for a cause. And I say, that's absolutely right. But you must remember that the disciples' cause died on a cross. And the fact that they were still be willing to testify to this fact proves, even at the threat of death, proves that something happened that day at the tomb. And so what we have to do is we just simply have to weigh the evidence. All of us are thinking people. We simply have to weigh the evidence and see which claim adds up. So there are many theories about what happened that day. No one denies that something happened. But what exactly is it that happened? And many individuals have theorized what happened. Even today, the popular theories just briefly are that the body was stolen. Even the Jews said that the body was stolen. And it's interesting that Justin, an early church guy in the second century, he said that even in the second century, the Jews were still telling that story, that the the disciples had stolen the body. And so the popular theories are that the body was stolen, or maybe these women, they went to the wrong tomb. Sort of funny, isn't it? They were just there, all those traumatic events. You'd think that they would remember where they laid the Lord. And then this idea is called the swoon theory, that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross, but because of the cold, damp tomb, He was resuscitated while He was later in the tomb. The only problem with that is, is that everyone who was crucified died in history. There are so many other far-fetched theories adopted by those skeptics to disprove the resurrection. But in 1930, there was a man by the name of Frank Morrison. He started out sort of like Lee Strobel did in our generation. Lee Strobel was a reluctant atheist. He was one who discredited. He says that his wife was a Christian, and, but he wasn't. And so Lee Strobel started out as a journalist, and he did sort of what Frank Morrison did. Frank Morrison, back in 1930, he was bent on disproving the resurrection until he started digging, until he started uncovering the evidence. And then in 1930, Frank Morrison wrote a book called Who Moved the Stone? The question begins with something happening. The fact that the stone was rolled away cannot be denied. The fact that something happened is undeniable even to this day. And we know what happened that day because God says that the something that happened was the resurrection of the Son after paying the penalty for sin once and for all. The reason why the angels announcement is so incredible is that it comes to us so unexpected over and over again in Mark's gospel and as Jesus was on the face of the earth over and over time and time again he told his disciples he said I'm going to die and then I'll be raised I'm going to die for the sin of the world and then after this I'll be raised. The thing that catches us by surprise and grabs us and holds us close at heart in this text here is that there's no idea that the disciples were anticipating what Jesus had said to even come true. No, instead of being anticipating of the resurrection, they were behind closed doors, fearful and hiding. 
And we need to know something this morning. Just as God interpreted the events of this text for us so that we will know, so that we're left beyond the shadow of a doubt, because now if we object to the resurrection, we're not objecting to one man's opinion, we're objecting to God's opinion. As He sends His messenger to interpret the details of exactly what happened One speaking as right from the throne of God, telling us what happened. And so even as it was true then, it's still true today. Listen closely to me. God is still interpreting today the events of history. Nothing takes Him by surprise. Nothing takes Him off guard. God is still interpreting the events of history. And God has given us the revelation of Himself, the Bible, through which we use as a lens to interpret the world. God has given us this Bible as a lens through which we interpret the world. And so I wonder sometimes, do we trust what God has said? Do we trust God's revelation? Or do you read your Bible and you read the Old Testament and you look at it and you say, well, that was back then. That's not the way things are today. The Bible says that God long ago spoke by the prophets in Hebrews chapter 1. But in these last days, the Bible says Jesus has spoken through His Son. So in other words, what does that mean for us? Jesus is the revelation of the Father. Jesus speaks. John calls Him the Word. The Word of God. This Word that created just God speaking. He spoke mountains into existence, caused a rainbow to come over the sky. God, with a word, raised the dead. God's Word. So Jesus then is that containment of God's Word. And we have the Word in written form, the revelation of God Himself. You see, this God, remember who it is that has spoken. This is the God who's perfect. This is the God who is without any error. He makes no mistakes. This God is all wise. And lest there be any doubt to His wisdom, look at the way the revelation of God, the interpretation of the events are to be spread. Who is it that carries the Easter message first? Who is it that declares the resurrected Christ first? Who is it? It's women. You say, well, what's the big deal? I'll tell you the big deal. Back in the first century, back in this day, women's testimony was not to be trusted. The testimony of a woman wouldn't even hold up in court. And so... If this story was made up, then the church would not have used women to carry the message. But the fact that women are used in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to declare the revelation shows us that this is not something that's just made up. And I think that this is the reason why to teach us about God's words, to teach us about God's ways, the fact that God chose to allow the message of the resurrection to be proclaimed by the mouth of women first, shows us that, listen carefully, the resurrection does not depend or does not rest on the wisdom or the power of man, but instead the resurrection rests upon the wisdom and the power of God. And so what He says, 
we can absolutely trust what He says, beloved, we can build our life upon. And we understand that all other ground that we live our life upon is nothing but simply sinking sand. And so we have this. God interpreting the events for the women on that day because He revealed the truth to them. Listen closely to me. He is interpreting the events of your life. This is what He says. It's appointed for you once to die. Who is it that said this? It's the one who raised Jesus from the dead. It's the one who in Daniel stopped the mouths of lions that day when Daniel was thrown into the pit. It's the one who commands the oceans to come this far. It's the one who just with his word flung the stars into the sky and causes them to shine. This one who said all of these things. Here's what he says. His word is absolutely trustworthy. He's the wisest of all. He said one day you're going to die. And after that comes the judgment. And here's the beauty of it all. It's not gloom and doom in Scripture. It's only gloom and doom if you refuse His truth. The hope of the resurrection, the hope of the mystery of Christ, the hope of Christ is that the way to escape eternal death is by placing your faith in the resurrected Christ. That's the only way. You see, listen, there's always grace with God. There's always forgiveness. This is what the message of the cross is. The importance of the empty tomb is all about this message that our God rescues, He restores, He saves, He offers salvation to all of those who will come to Him. And I want to prove this to you from here. And this is what's so astounding, so astonishing about the resurrection. Look at verse 7. The angel says, He is not here, He is risen. You can come and look and see the place where they laid Him, and you see that there's no one here anymore. And then he comes in verse 7. And the angel speaking on behalf of God here. Look at what he says in verse 7. And if we're not careful, we'll miss the implication. So I want to teach you this morning. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. God's plan is gracious salvation. This is the first time that we hear from Peter since Mark chapter 15 and verse 72. On this Easter Sunday, there was no one who was still living who needed to hear more than Peter that he was still included in one of the group. Notice we see in Mark chapter 14, verse 72, it says that Peter denies Jesus. Look at what it says. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And what happened with Peter? He broke down. And he wept. The last time we hear Peter 
Last time Peter is mentioned, he denies Jesus. At the moment that you and I would think that Jesus needed Peter the most, Peter denies him. This one who brazenly said, if you remember, he said that he would die for Jesus. The one who took up a sword in the garden that night, ready to fight, ready to defend Jesus. And when they came to get him in the night, he fought by cutting off Malchus's ear. And here we see him, the last time we see him, he denies even knowing Jesus, any association with Jesus. And the Bible tells us that he is even willing to invoke a curse upon himself than to admit that he had been with Jesus. John tells the story, I believe it is, or one of the Gospels tells the story that when he saw Jesus, after he had spoken the word, when he saw Jesus. And I love the, the way the text is written. It's almost as if Jesus is, is there in the court and Peter's outside warming himself by the fire. And the irony there is so astounding. Here Jesus is. He's been beaten. He's been flogged. Maybe he has his hand behind his back as a criminal. And here Peter is warming himself by the fire in comfort. The way the gospel record is, it says that when he saw Jesus, it's almost as if after the rooster crowed, the eyes of Jesus and the eyes of Peter met. And maybe at this point, Jesus had already had his lips swollen and maybe one of his eyes closed from the beating. And the Bible says that when Peter heard the rooster crow, he broke down and wept. What about Peter? Had he reached the point of no return? Had Peter gone too far? No. The message that Peter has is a message of hope for you, a message of hope for me, that none of us can go further than Peter did unless we continually deny him. Peter had reached what seemingly would be the point of no return, but then God says through his angel, he says, go and tell the disciples and Peter. Don't forget about Peter. Peter forgot about Jesus, but Jesus didn't forget about him. Peter is numbered among the disciples. He didn't deserve to be numbered amongst the disciples. But this is what grace is. Grace says that none of us here deserve to be the beneficiaries of Jesus' death this perfect one who never sinned, no deceit was found in his mouth. He died for you. He took your sin, my sin, and he made them his very own. None of us deserve salvation, but this is exactly what grace is. God's unmerited favor upon us. All because Isaiah 53 says he was willing to crush the Son. So that by His stripes we would be healed. Jesus took the wrath of God, paid the full penalty for sin so that we who were lost could be restored to fellowship with God. You see, grace, listen carefully. This is why things don't change after Jesus is raised. Grace, salvation was always the plan, was always the purpose of God. And how did it come? The plan and the purpose of God for our salvation came through the cross. And mine and your salvation this morning rest in the fact that the angel looked and said, He is not here. He is risen. See the place where they laid Him. Our salvation rests in the empty tomb Jesus.
Or look at verse 8. I want you to see the way the gospel ends. The reason I say the gospel ends is because I believe that the gospel of Mark ends at verse 8. You say, what about in my Bible? I have verses 9 through 20. What about those? And the reason that I believe, and I could sit up here and prove it to you, you have to come back on a Wednesday night maybe, and I'll teach you the reason why. I don't believe that that's original. I believe that that was added in by a scribe. Because the gospel ends sort of strangely. It ends with them being afraid and terrified. Now, could Mark have written an ending and it have been lost? Maybe. Or did Mark purposefully end it at verse 8? Maybe. We don't know those things. But most scholars agree that the original ending of Mark is not verses 9 through 22. They say that Mark ended at verse 8. And so whether or not Mark intended that to be or not, the fact of the matter remains that God intended Mark to end at verse 8. Because that's the faithful witness and the faithful testimony that we have passed down through us. And the way that it ends, I think that God wants to teach us a lesson at the way that the gospel of Mark ends. Because it doesn't end neat and tidy. As we often think that Easter should just end, Easter Sunday should be neat and tidy. We come, we sing some resurrection songs. We come, we look at the pretty Easter lilies and we, we have a good time shouting hallelujah. And then we go eat our ham and go have an Easter egg hunt. It's all neat and tidy. Praise the Lord. But that's not the way the story ends. We're astonished at the way it ends because there's no joy that we see. There's only trembling and astonishment. Why is this? And I think that the reason that it ends like this is because they understood the implications of this event. This single event that we celebrate today on Easter Sunday is that one event that would change the entire world forever. You see, dear beloved, the reason that we're astonished at this is because the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. They started out thinking that their life was going to be the same. They started out thinking that everything was just going about as normal as they could after Jesus died. But then they met that angel as a messenger of God who told them the message. Then they met an empty tomb. Someone had moved the body, and the one who moved the body was God the Father who spoke life into Jesus and raised Him from the dead. That's how the body moved. That's how there was an empty tomb. Life would never be the same. But many of us are guilty, I'm afraid, as believers even. Many of us are guilty of wanting to keep the Easter story only. Wanting to keep our belief regulated to Easter Sunday only. Wanting to regulate our belief and keep it compartmentalized to only one hour, an hour and 15 minutes on Sunday. But we're thankful for the report of the risen King. We're thankful that we have this news that Christ is risen from the grave. Hallelujah. But we don't understand the fearful implications that it has for you. The fearful implications that it has for me. Listen carefully to me this morning. The resurrection means that those who trust in Jesus have their sins forgiven. 
It means that they have been totally justified in the sight of God. It means that you and I, because Christ is alive, those of us who put our faith in Him, we are in the right with God. But that's not all that the resurrection story means. The all of the resurrection story is that this event has changed everything. Everything now has changed. When Christ rises, listen closely, when Christ rises from the dead, the dawn of the new world is coming. The Holy Spirit will soon be poured out on all flesh. What does that mean? It means the last days are here. The inauguration of the last days have come. And what do we mean when we use the phrase last days? We mean that there will be no days after this. After this period, that's it. What exists after this? Eternity. Jesus will soon bring about what He prayed for when He prayed, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. That day will soon come because Jesus is now alive. Look at verse 7. He says, Go tell His disciples and Peter, tell them what? That He is going before you. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. Increasing His kingdom all over the world. He is going before us. Our Savior promised that He would never leave us. He promised that He would never forsake us. He goes before us and is with us to accomplish His will for humanity. His, and His will and desire for humanity is for His glory to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And so this morning... The resurrection of Jesus should elicit within us, elicit within us this wondrous joy. Everything about the risen tomb, everything about the resurrection confronts us, astounds us, and leaves us with the understanding that this God that we serve displayed a love so amazing, so divine, that He demands your life, your soul, everything that you are to yield to His purposes. Everything about Jesus is terrifying. Everything about His life. The fact that He could command a storm and let it cease. And the disciples say, Who is this man that even the seas obey Him? Everything about Him is astounding. Everything about Him is fearful. Everything about Him is terrifying. And the reason that it's terrifying is because He's God. But we understand the marvelous truth of this message is that this God loves us. As C.S. Lewis said of Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia, he's a gentle lion, but he's still a lion. He's still the God who loves. He's still the God who reigns. And because he is God, he shows us, he demonstrates his love for us. He has all authority that has been given to him because now he is alive and now he tells us to fulfill his mission. In verse 8, And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone. They were afraid. Have you yielded to Jesus? The only man on earth who said that he was going to raise from the dead 
and he did it. Have you yielded your life to him? Have you given yourself to him? You see, all authority has been given to him. And now he has authority over your life. And as such, he commands you as the one who is in authority. And the reason he has authority is because he paid the penalty for sin, paid in full through his death, and then rose from the dead. He has authority over your life and he commands you to repent. You see, God this morning, listen to me, he loves you. And He has demonstrated His love for you through His sending of the Son. And He wants you this morning to fulfill the purpose that He has for you. But in order for you to live, you must first die. You must first admit that there's nothing that you can do to save yourself. You must come to the realization this morning that the reason that Christ hung on the cross was because of your sin. You must first have to go to the cross, admit that you're a sinner, come to a point of broken realization that it was your sin that sent Him to the cross. But listen to me this morning. Just as the cross was not the final stopping point for Jesus, it's not the final stopping point for us. We go from the cross after admitting that we're a sinner. We go to the grave We go to the place where Jesus was raised from the dead and we confess. We believe that He is alive and He is able to save you if you come to Him. But the glorious thing is that after we admit that we're a sinner and we believe that this God is alive and able to save, we're not done yet. We continue from the grave after we have received salvation and then we're filled with the Holy Spirit just as the disciples were and then we go out into the world to proclaim others this glorious salvation to fulfill His intention for us to obey God, to make disciples of all the nations. And so I just want to simply ask you this morning, have you been to the cross where your salvation was bought, have you been to the grave to see Jesus alive and well offering salvation for you if you just trust Him? Maybe you're here today and for the first time in your life you realize how astonishing the resurrection is. Maybe after reading this text and having the Holy Spirit through the inspiration of His message, through the inspiration of His Word, and as this preacher has proclaimed the truth to you, the power of the Gospel is for salvation. Maybe you're left breathless this morning at this story of the resurrected Christ. And I want to tell you, this morning, If that's you, if you're left breathless, if you're astonished at this God who would love you, we're going to give you an opportunity to respond. We're going to give you an opportunity to confess Jesus as your Lord. Give you the opportunity to give your all to Him. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for our salvation that you gave us in Christ. 
And now, Lord God, we understand the implications of this. We understand that now you command all people everywhere to repent. And God, I pray in the power of the Holy Spirit that all of those who are in the sound of my voice, if they don't know you, may today be the day that they cry out to you and say, God, I'm a sinner. But I believe that through your work you have made a way for me. By the resurrection of Jesus, you have secured a salvation for me. And now, Lord God, I trust you. I hope in you. I believe in you. I pray, Lord God, that you would give strength to those who need the strength to confess you as Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the preaching ministry of Dr. Andy Brown, Senior Pastor of First Baptist Startville in Startville, Mississippi. If you would like to learn more about how we're taking the gospel from Startville to the ends of the earth, visit www.fbcstartville.com.